This evening's uh, talk <coughs> is we'll be exploring karma or kama in Pali. <coughs> and beginning with some words from the Buddha. All beings are owners of their kama, heirs of their kama, born of their kama, related to their kama, supported by their kama. I'd like to begin by saying something that I've found to be uh, very helpful and supportive throughout the various phases and stages of my practice over the years as I began to connect with and more deeply understand the teaching of Kama. And this is that the that this teaching, this teaching about Kama offers and brings to an ever clearer light a path of practice that isn't based on fear or belief of any higher authority, any supreme being, but rather founded on a clear understanding of the natural law of cause and effect as it relates to all things, as it relates to all phenomena, and particularly as it relates to human behavior. Consequently, the teaching on kama is not something to be believed in, but rather something to be understood as we come to know it in operation. And as a Western woman, I I think that I can safely say this for most all of us who have primarily been brought up uh, and conditioned in in Western-oriented countries. And I think I can also safely say this for those who have been brought up and acculturated, at least in good part, in various Asian cultures, that it's kind of a relief to discover that it turns out that Kama is not some unreachable or strange concept. The teaching, relevancy, and understanding of Kama, which is one of Buddhism's uh, central themes, is really quite accessible and even quite ordinary. Maybe even so ordinary that somehow it may elude our very complicated minds. So what is kama? Etymologically, or the root of the word kama is action or deed. In the context of the Dhamma, it's defined more specifically and clearly as action based on intention. Another way of looking at and understanding this is action based on motivation. In English, the word motivation has a somewhat deeper or subtler uh, meaning than intention. The motivation in the mind behind or underneath or preceding the intention. Motivation or intention is what leads to deeds willfully done, deeds done through volition. In the Buddhist teaching, Kama refers only to intentional or volitional action. Intentional or willful action is the mental factor responsible for Kama. So Kama is intention, which includes will, choice, and decision. The mental impetus which leads to actions, both creative and destructive actions. This is the essence of kama. 
and from the Buddha. Monks, it is intention, I say, that is kama. Having willed, we create kama through body, speech, and mind. (coughs) There are two sorts of volitional action that come from two flavors of motivation or two flavors of intention. Wholesome motivation, wholesome intention, leads us to choose to act or to speak in a wholesome way. An unwholesome motivation or unwholesome intention leads us to decide to act or speak in an unwholesome way. So we could say wholesome intention or wholesome motivation is wholesome kama. An unwholesome intention is unwholesome kama. Kama is a law of nature, the way of things, the law of cause and effect, cause and result. So, just like a rubber ball that's thrown against a wall bounces back, skillful, unskillful, or neutral intention and action generates inevitable consequences. The law of kama is one of the fundamental natural laws through which we create vastly different realities. As we experientially, through our own direct immediate experience, begin to understand the law of kama, how these consequences are created and combined and intensified throughout our life begins to be clarified. His Holy uh, Holiness Dalai Lama said, it's more important to understand kama than emptiness. Something that I've discovered uh, by way of my own deep practice to be quite amazing and illuminating is that in the context of the teachings and in our practice of the Dhamma, intention has a much subtler meaning than it commonly has in the way that it's used and understood in everyday English. I think we usually uh, consider or think of intention uh, as the link between internal thought and its resultant external actions, such as maybe I did that intentionally, or we might uh, we might uh, ask. Is that what you really meant to say? So, so that's that sort of thing, that sort of way. The Buddhist teaching tells us that all actions, all speech, and all thoughts, no matter how fleeting, as well as the responses of the mind, the heart, to the various experiences and sensations received through each of the six sense doors, the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the mind, that all of this, without (coughs) exception, contains elements of intention. This means that the mind subtly, or sometimes not so subtly, volitionally or willfully, chooses objects of awareness and reaps the karmic fruit of these choices. So in other words, intention is the factor which leads the mind to turn towards or to turn away from various potential objects of awareness. Intention is the factor that leads the mind, the heart, to proceed or not proceed in a particular direction. From this perspective, it's intention that guides or governs the mind, the heart's response to stimuli. As our practice deepens, we begin to see and know more and more clearly through our own direct experience that intention is the force that organizes the movements of the mind. 
which means that intention is a primary aspect of what determines the states that are experienced by the mind, the heart. The Buddha spoke many times about the fact that the motivation or the intention that leads to action is the mental impetus that is the determinant of our karmic fruit. In other words, the motivation, the intention that leads to action is what determines the result of our action. Basically, this is the teaching of cause and effect, or cause and result. Inherent in each intention or motive in the mind, in the heart, no matter how subtle, is an energy that's powerful enough to bring about subsequent results. It's possible to actually experience this process occurring even on a very subtle level when mindfulness, strong mindfulness, is accompanied by a clear, deep, and strong momentary concentration. Or when a clear, strong mindfulness is accompanied by a very well-developed access concentration. So, in light of this, consider that just one tiny thought that may not even be a particularly important thought isn't without consequence. It will, re- it will result in at least a tiny speck of kama that's added to the stream of conditions which shapes one's mental activity. If this tiny speck is practiced repeatedly over and over and over again in the mind or expressed repeatedly through external expression in speech or in actions, the result, the karmic result is strengthened in the form of one's character traits and even through one's bodily makeup, such as various physical expressions or even physical features as well as in the form of our various verbal and active responses or reactions in relationship to the outer world. Even the responses and the reactions that come to us, that we in a sense draw to us from external sources, can sometimes show up in similar repetitive ways and be strengthened when we're unaware, be strengthened when we're not mindful and are repeatedly acting out of or repeatedly practicing these specks of mental kama that add to the stream of conditions that shape our mental activity. There's a Tibetan teaching that says something like, everything rests on the tip of motivation. Or we could say everything rests on the tip of intention. A painful or destructive comma, intention, doesn't really have to be on a gross level for it to be effective. I remember once many years ago when I was sitting a retreat and I got a note that was a very... uh, Unpleasant, very, I was really not pleased at all with the note. And so then I proceeded to quite angrily tear up the piece of paper that it was written on. And even though that piece of paper itself had absolutely no importance, the action certainly had some effect on the quality of my mind, on the quality of my heart. In contrast to this, more recently, uh, here in our retreat, <clears throat> I took a notice off the board that was um, uh, expired um, with a very neutral state of mind. And I just simply threw it away in the wastebasket. 
with the action producing really a very different effect on the quality of my mind and my heart that in those moments. <clears throat> if we repeatedly act out of angry or some out of an angry or some degree of greedy intention, the effects of this type of accumulation will become clearer and clearer and may develop in a more and more significant level if we're not mindful. In the chain of or in the wheel of dependent origination or what is sometimes called the wheel of called the wheel of interdependent arising which is the process of how the experiences of dukkha or ease that we have via uh, uh, the six sense doors come to be, how they manifest and then cease to be. Kama, specifically in terms of intention, is called the agent which fashions the mind. So in light of this discussion, I'd like to read some words from the Thai Buddhist scholar, a venerable Paiuto. This comes uh, from his book called Good, Evil, and Beyond, Kama in the Buddha's Teaching. Consider the specks of dust which come floating unnoticed into a room. There isn't one speck which is void of consequence. It is the same for the mind. But the weight of that consequence, in addition to being dependent on the amount of mental dust, is also related to the quality of the mind. For instance, specks of dust which alight onto a road surface have to be of a very large quantity before the road will seem to be dirty. Specks of dust which alight onto a floor, although of a much smaller quantity, may make the floor seem dirtier than the road. A smaller amount of dust accumulating on a tabletop will seem dirty enough to maybe cause irritation. An even smaller amount lighting on a mirror will seem dirty and will interfere with its functioning. A tiny speck of dust on a spectacle lens is perceptible and can impair impair vision. In the same way, motivation or intention, no matter how small, is not void of fruit. The Buddha said all kama, whether wholesome or unwholesome, bears fruit. There's no kama, no matter how small, which is void of fruit. In the same way, the mind has varying levels of refinement or clarity depending on accumulated (coughs) kama. As long as the mind is being used on a coarse level, no, no problem may be apparent. But if it's necessary to use the mind on a refined level, previous unskillful kama, even on a minor scale, may become an obstacle. There's a wonderful section of short suttas in the Samyutta Nikaya uh, called Connected Discourses in the Woods, a few of which I offered um, in an earlier talk during this retreat, where various woodland-dwelling devas approach and speak to certain monks who are practicing in those woodland thickets. So I'd like to share just a part of one of these same short dialogues as an illustration uh, regarding uh, what we're exploring this evening. And this is the verse about a bhikkhu, a monk, Uh, who after returning from his daily uh, alms round and then eating his meal in the woodland thicket where he practiced every day, would go down to a nearby uh, pond and sniff a red lotus. You might might remember that one. And when the deva who lived in that same woodland thicket saw this, she thought, well, having received a meditation subject from the Buddha and entered into the forest to meditate, this bhikkhu is instead meditating on the scent of flowers. If his craving for scent increases, it will destroy his welfare. 
Let me draw near and reproach him. So out of compassion and wishing to stir up a sense of urgency in the monk to practice, the deva addressed the monk as follows. And this is just a, uh, an excerpt from this particular uh, short sutta. And the deva says, When you sniff this lotus flower, an item that has not been given, this is one factor of theft. You, sir, are a thief of scent. And the bhikkhu responds, I do not take, I do not damage. I sniff the lotus from afar. So for what reason do you say that I'm a thief of scent? One who digs up the lotus stalks, one who damages the flowers, one who one of such rough behavior, why is he not spoken to? And the deva responds, When a person is rough and fierce, badly soiled like a nursing cloth, I have nothing to say to him, but it is to you I ought to speak. For a person without blemish, always in quest of purity, even a mere hair's tip of evil appears as big as a cloud. The understanding that various experiences of stress, various experiences of suffering, and the experience of ease are the result of our kama, the result of our actions, our actions of thought, speech, and deed, right here and now in this lifetime, right here and now in this very day, and on back and back and back. This is Kama. This is our Kama. We're born. We spring out of the womb of Kama. And even though we may or we may not like it at times, we are the undeniable heirs of our Kama. So for instance, just as soon as we've spoken words or or performed any action, we've actually totally lost control over it. And yet, it remains with us. In some way, and in some way it inevitably returns to us as what we could call our due inheritance. So, what does this mean? We could say that everything that happens and the resultant ease or dis-ease in our mind and heart, that this ease or dis-ease is the outcome, meaning that uh, it's the response or the reaction in our own mind in relationship to all of the internal and external happenings that we experience that produce ease or dis-ease in the mind, the heart. In other words, our suffering and our happiness in this life, in any given moment, is due to our motivations, our intentions, and the consequent actions, meaning our wholesome responses or unwholesome reactions to internal and external phenomena. So you might remember Suan's uh, response the young Native American woman, Sue Ann's response to the heckling that was coming from the spectators at the basketball game in the lead in Leeds, South Dakota. Our ease and our happiness, or dis-ease and suffering, is not due to our wishes, our hopes and dreams for ourselves, and not due to some other person or some outer antagonistic uh, or seemingly mysterious, strange, or foreign world. And again a quote from the Dalai Lama, happiness is not something ready-made. It comes from your own actions. As awakening beings, our practice continues to develop our capacity to see the truth of how things occur. 
how things unfold, and to see their nature. As this comes clearer and clearer through our direct experience within our own body-mind continuum, we quite naturally find that the intentions, the motivations in the mind, more and more often lead to wholesome, responsive, creative choices rather than to unwholesome, reactive, destructive choices. In its powerful potential to bring good or bad results, kama can be compared to food. Some foods are good, bringing us, uh, bringing and promoting health when we eat them. If we eat them at the right time and in the right amount. And some foods are harmful and bring disease or may even be poisonous for us, maybe even deadly. So we pay attention to the thoughts and the intentions behind or underneath the potential action and feed ourselves and thus others healthy food and consequently create healthy karma. One of the great benefits of our practice comes as a sense of fulfillment and joy and harmony as we come to understand and live our understanding, knowing that we, in fact, are the owners or the heirs of our kama, and that in this knowing we can and and we do actively create and fashion our life. And that the more clearly we know our motivations, our intentions, the more clearly we have the possibility of creating a deeper, sustaining, and more pervasive experience of well-being throughout our life. Understanding the law of kama and living our understanding offers us the potential experience of a sense of inner peace and a sense of well-being and wholeness. If we live if we live in ignorance meaning ignoring or misunderstanding the way of things, we're living in conflict. We're living in disharmony with the way of things. And so we're bound then to experience maybe some fear, anguish, grief, dissonance, confusion. As this understanding takes root in us, it actually has the power to free us from fear. When in fact, with everything that happens within us and around us, we begin to see that we only meet ourselves. We only meet our own mind. What is there to fear? The heart, the mind, begins to relax. And we begin to know that we can change our mind. And we truly begin to know that we're not trapped, running around and around and around on the karmic wheel. It's as though we're all artists. But instead of canvas or paint or clay or marble or music or pencil and pen and paper as our creative medium, it's our very mind, body, and heart. And the immediacy of our life experience that are the materials of our creative expression. And so again, one of the great benefits of our practice comes as a sense of fulfillment and joy and harmony as we come to understand and live our understanding, knowing that we, in fact, are the owners or the heirs of our kama.
and that in this knowing we can and, and we do actively create and fashion our life. And that the more we know our motivations, the more we know our intentions, the more clearly we have the possibility of creating a deeper, sustaining, and more pervasive experience of well-being throughout our life. The Buddha considered mental kama to be the most important and the most far-reaching in its effect. Because as well as mental kama being what shapes our inner reality, thought precedes all of our actions of body and speech. The flavor of our thoughts, wholesome or unwholesome, are conditioned by our intentions, are conditioned by our motivations. Our motivations are conditioned by our view, our understanding, with our views often showing up maybe as beliefs and our preferences, which are what direct our motivations, what direct our intentions, and the resultant thoughts, which potentially then flow out into words and actions. So, just simply and briefly, what what does this mean? If we cling to the view, if we cling to the understanding of ourself and other beings and things and even situations, experiences and places as being independent, separate and static, meaning unchanging, we're motivated by misunderstanding and ignorance. We're ignoring the truth of things. Consequently, we're motivated by what's called wrong view in the Buddhist teachings. And with this wrong view, this misunderstanding, our intentions, our motivations are coming from a self-centered, disconnected, non-harmonious, unhealthy, unwholesome place and will inevitably bring suffering to ourself and to others. If we have the understanding, if one is experientially, through practice, growing into the understanding that ourselves and other things and other beings, uh, situations, experiences and places are totally interdependent and arise only because of various causes and conditions coming together. And in fact, the causes and the conditions themselves are also always in flux. That nothing, that no thing, abides independently or separately or is static. Then our intentions and our motivations come out of understanding the truth of the way of things. Our intentions, our motivations come out of what's called right view. So our thoughts then and the subsequent flow of words and actions all come from a place of harmony and a lightness of being and are more and more often appropriately responsive in any given situation and consequently are then beneficial in both overt and subtle ways in relationship to ourselves and in relationship to others. And some words from the Buddha on right view. (coughs) This is from the Anguttara Nikaya in Buddhist speaking. Monks, nuns, yogis, when there is wrong view, bodily kama created as a result of that view, verbal kama created as a result of that view, and mental kama created as a result of that view, as well as intentions, aspirations, wishes, and mental proliferations, all are productive of results that are undesirable, unpleasant, disagreeable, yielding no benefit but conducive to suffering. On what account? On account of that pernicious view. 
It's like a margosa seed or the seed of a bitter gourd placed in moist earth. The soil and water taken in as nutriment are wholly converted into a bitter taste, an acrid taste, a foul taste. Why is that? Because the seed is not good. Monks, nuns, yogis, when there is right view, bodily kama created as a result of that view, verbal kama created as a result of that view, mental kama created as a result of that view, as well as intentions, aspirations, wishes, and mental pro- proliferations, all are yielding to of results that are desirable, pleasant, agreeable, producing benefit, conducive to happiness. On what account? On account of those good views. It is like a seed of the sugar cane, a seed of wheat, a seed, a fruit seed, planted in moist earth. The water and soil taken in as nutriment are wholly converted into sweetness, into refreshment, into a delicious taste. On what account is that? On account of that good seed. An important aspect of right view in relationship to what we call self or call me is at least in part and very often a reference to this body. As we briefly explored in an earlier Dhamma talk uh, when we discussed this body, um, it's actually not something solid but rather a process made up of many elements, with each and all of them being in continual flux. And what I'm referring to uh, are the experiential characteristics of the four great elements that we come to know directly through our practice. So, just as a brief review of this, because I didn't spend much time with it in the previous Dhamma talk, the elements, the characteristics of the four great elements that we experience daily, that we experience all the time, really, if we're paying attention. Um, The earth element, the characteristics that we experience, that we come to know, uh, the experiential characteristics of the earth element are hardness, roughness, heaviness, softness, smoothness, lightness. The experiential characteristics of the water element that we come to know when we're mindfully paying attention are flowing and cohesion. The experiential characteristics of the fire element that we come to know when we're being mindful in the body is heat and warmth coolness or coldness and the experiential elements of the air element that we come to know when we're paying a mindful attention in the body are supporting and pushing. This experiential non-ordinary understanding of the body can be an important and illuminating step on the path of right view in relationship to really directly experientially understanding not self, understanding impersonality. And it's in this light that the Buddha spoke about actions without an actor, doings without a doer. Within, within what is essentially an impersonal karmic process, our actions are like the seeds that are planted and then transformed by the shifting patterns of our life. Some seeds are cultivated and nourished quickly. 
Some seeds may be dormant for many, many years, maybe many lifetimes, one way of understanding heredity, until the exact combination of causes and conditions arise for them to germinate. And always the fruit will bear a direct relationship to the seed. An obvious and very clear metaphor often used to explain this is that apple seeds bring apples into the world. Lettuce seeds bring lettuce into the world. If we want poppy flowers, we plant poppy seeds. No matter how much we might hope, lettuce uh, won't grow from these seeds, or will grow from these seeds, I should say. They won't. (coughs) A loving act at some point ends up bearing loving fruit. An angry or hateful act at some point produces hateful fruit. And again, some words from the Buddha that we began with uh, this evening. All beings are owners of their kama, heirs of their kama, born of their kama, related to their kama, supported by their kama. An important and maybe obvious point here is that not-self, impersonality, behind our actions, doesn't discount our responsibility for the things that we do. Kama is a very powerful force that inevitably makes itself felt. We need to couple our understanding of selflessness couple our understanding of not-self with a very mindful and respectful attention to our motivations and actions and their karmic fruit, karmic fruit. When we begin to understand more deeply that kama is based on intention, kama is based on motivation, we begin to see the enormous and important responsibility that we have to become aware of the intentions, to become aware of the motivation that precedes our actions of mind, speech, and body. If we're unaware of the motives in our mind, when wholesome, unskillful, unwholesome, when unwholesome, unskillful intentions arise, we may unmindfully act on them and consequently create the conditions for immediate or future suffering. And some words from Padmasambhava, said to have brought the Buddhist teachings to Tibet from Bhutan. Though your vision is as vast as the sky, your attention to the law of Kama should be as fine as a grain of barley flour. Mindfulness of our own intentions before we speak or before we act, and also the awareness of the karmic fruit of our words and actions once they've been said and performed, has the effect of really, truly broadening our field of choice as we practice to purify and transform our mind and our heart and our actions so that we're not just running on automatic, so that we're not running on habitual ways of thinking and speaking and acting. When we mindfully experience the effects of our actions, we, for instance, see that extending generosity and loving kindness and compassion towards towards others comes back to us. And we see and we feel the effect of approaching the world with aggression or anger or judgment or greed or grasping. An important point to consider in relationship to these teachings and practices is that it's not really so important at all where your present suffering came from. What's really important is 
where you take it from here. Meaning, what's most important is how you approach the situation in and of this moment. So, for instance, the appropriate, healthy and wholesome response to suffering, whatever the cause of it may be, is compassion. As we traverse this path through our practice, we clearly begin to see and to know that there's a refuge, so to say. (coughs) A refuge where the suffering of confusion and fear and anger and resistance and discontent and clinging can be dispelled. And that refuge is through our good deeds. Refuge from this perspective is in wholesome motivations, wholesome intentions, thoughts, and words, and performing wholesome actions. As we take this refuge, there comes to be a growing confidence in the great protecting power of good deeds that we've done in the past and a growing courage to perform more wholesome deeds right now, even in the midst of what might be some hardship in our current life. And of course our practice itself, this incredible training of the mind and heart, is a very, very good deed, the best really, and the essential ground for the blossoming of wholesomeness in through all aspects of our life. One of the things that's been really important for me in understanding Kama is that it's always the right time to perform wholesome actions. It's always the right time to do good deeds. It's it's never too late. Conditioning such as, well, well, too bad. It's too late. Or, I'm too old. You can't teach an old dog new tricks. Those, those are not true. It is never, ever too late. And so we practice this. And it becomes established in us. And it becomes a refuge. And at some point we know for sure, as was said by one of the Buddha's disciples, more and more ceases the misery and evil rooted in the past. And in this present life, I try to make it spotless and pure. What else then can can the future bring other than the increase of the good? As this becomes more and more a certainty in our mind, the mind, the heart, becomes more tranquil and more serene And through our practice, we gain the great strength of a calm, focused mind and a patient heart and the growing evenness and balance of equanimity in relationship to the various challenges and the various difficulties that come up in through our practice and in our life as a whole. As the refuge of doing good deeds becomes our way. Our deeds become our friend rather than our adversary. Even if sometimes the immediate results of our deeds seem to bring us maybe some sorrow or maybe uh, discomfort or pain, maybe through the way others treat us or through some upheaval or some turmoil in our life, or maybe in some surprising or unrecognizable phenomena that shows up in our practice. And sometimes the results of our deeds, our good deeds, may not be at all what we expected, not really what we had in mind. Results that are maybe seem contrary to what we might think our intention, what we might think our motivation was. Many years ago I had a therapist who would 
sometimes say to me, or actually more accurately, say for me at, uh, at appropriate times, she would say, this isn't what I had in mind. Which would always stop me in my tracks and move me to take a look, to take a very close look at my motivations and my expectations. And most importantly, in that moment, to simply be with what was occurring with an as open a heart and mind and as clear a mind as was possible at the time. If we make suffering our teacher, then in a sense it becomes our friend. Maybe sometimes kind of a stern or maybe in a, a certain way kind of a demanding teacher, yet potentially a truthful and a very well-intended friend. We learn about ourselves, which seems to be our most difficult subject. The teachings of Kama and the understanding therein can imbue us with a very powerful motivation to free ourselves from Kama, to free ourselves from the actions that again and again throw us into repeated suffering, to free ourselves in this very life from repeatedly being born or repeatedly being reborn into the realm of suffering. So I'd like to now uh, read a section uh, from a book called And There Was Light by Jacques Lucirin. Jacques Lucirin was a man who was involved in the French underground movement during the Second World War. And this is a section from his autobiography that really very beautifully illuminates our, our discussion this evening about Kama. It was a great surprise to me to find myself blind and being blind was not all as I had imagined it. Nor was it as the people around me seemed to think it. They told me that to be blind meant not to see, yet how was I to believe them when I saw? Not at once, I admit, not in the days immediately after the operation, for at that time I still wanted to use my eyes. I followed their usual path. I looked in the direction where I was in the habit of seeing before the accident, and there was anguish a lack, something like a void, which filled me with what grown-ups call despair. Finally, one day, and it was not long in coming, I realized that I was looking in the wrong way. It was as simple as that. I was making something very like the mistake people make who change their glasses without adjusting themselves. I was looking too far off and too much on the surface of things. At this point, some instinct made me change course. I began to look more closely, not at things, but at a world closer to myself, looking from an inner place to one further within instead of clinging to the movement of sight toward the world outside. Immediately, the substance of the universe drew together, redefined and peopled itself anew. I was aware of a radiance emanating from a place I knew nothing about, a place which might as well have been outside me as within. But radiance was there, or to put it more precisely, light. It was a fact, for light was there. I felt indescribable relief and happiness so great it almost made me laugh. Confidence and gratitude came as if a prayer had been answered. I found light and joy at the same moment, and I can say without hesitation that from that time on, light and joy have never been separated in my experience. I have had them or lost them together. I saw light and went on seeing it, though I was blind. I said so, but for many years I think I didn't say it very loud. Until I was nearly 14, I remember calling the experience which, which kept renewing itself inside me my secret and, explain, and speaking of it only to my most intimate friends. I don't know whether they believed me, but they listened to me, for they were my friends. And what I told them had a greater value than being merely true. 
It had the value of being beautiful, a dream, an enchantment, almost like magic. The amazing thing that it was not magic for me at all, but reality. I could no more have, have, de- no more have denied it than people with eyes can de- deny that they see. I was not like myself, I knew that, but I bathed in it as an element which blindness had suddenly brought much closer. I could feel light rising, spreading, and resting on objects, giving them form, then leaving them. Withdrawing or diminishing is what I mean, for the opposite of light was never present. Sighted people always talk about the night of blindness that seems to them quite natural. But there is no such night, for at every waking hour and even in my dreams I lived in a stream of light. Without my eyes, light was much more stable than it had been with them. As I remember it, there were no longer the same differences between things lighted brightly, less brightly, or not at all. I saw the whole world in light existing through it and because of it. Still, there were times when light faded almost to the point of disappearing. It happened every time I was afraid. If instead of letting myself be carried along by confidence and throwing myself into things, I hesitated, calculated, thought about the wall, the half-open door, the key in the lock, if I said to myself that all these things were hostile and about to strike or scratch, then without exception I hit or wounded myself. The only easy way to move around the house, the garden, or the beach was by not thinking about it at all, or thinking as little as possible. Then I moved between obstacles the way they say bats do. What the loss of my eyes had not accomplished was brought about by fear. It made me blind. Anger and impatience had the same effect, throwing everything into confusion. The minute before, I knew just where everything in the room was. But if I got angry, things got angrier than I. They went and hid in the most unlikely corners, mixed themselves up, turned turtle, muttered like crazy men, and looked wild. As for me, I no longer knew where to put a hand or foot. Everything hurt me. The mechanisms worked so well that I became cautious. When I was playing with my small companions, if I suddenly grew anxious to win, to be first at all costs, then all at once I could see nothing. Literally, I went into fog or smoke. I could no longer afford to be jealous or unfriendly because as soon as I was, a bandage came down over my eyes and I was bound hand and foot and cast aside. All at once a black hole opened and I was helpless inside it. But when I was happy and serene, approached people with confidence and thought well of them, I was rewarded with light. So is it surprising that I loved friendship and harmony when I was very young? I always knew where the road was open and where it was closed. I had only to look at the bright signal which taught me how to live. All of us, whether blind or not, are terribly greedy. We want things only for ourselves. Even without realizing it, we want the universe to be like us and give us all the room in it. But a blind child learns very quickly that this cannot be. We have to learn it, for every time we forget we are not, that we're not alone in the world, we strike against an object, hurt ourselves, and are called to order. But each time we remember, we are rewarded, for everything comes our way. And closing the talk this evening with some words from the Buddha. One should reflect reflect repeatedly upon one's own mind this way. For a long time, the sanctity or purity of this mind has been destroyed by greed, by hatred, by delusion. It is by mental defilement beings are defiled. It is by mental purification that beings are purified. And then the Buddha goes on to say, all conditioned, all conditions have mind as forerunner. Mind as master are accomplished by mind. 
Whatever one says or does with an unclear mind brings suffering in its wake, just as the cartwheel follows the ox's hoof. Whatever one says or does with a clear mind brings happiness in his wake, just in its wake, just as the shadow follows its owner. And let's sit quietly for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.